0: When planning for any adventure, the question is, how much time does it take to plan? If you were to read Chris Scott's book on motorcycle adventuring, he would tell you that the trip around the world takes a minimum of one year planning. And that's probably good advice. So if you're going to travel... 264 days, uh, about
1: nine months, 23,000 miles, 18 countries.
0: You're going to ride your motorcycle from Sydney, Australia to London, England. The question is, how much time do you put into planning that trip? And uh,
1: three days of planning. And... uh, Three days of planning. Did he just say three days? And uh, three days of planning.
0: This is Zoe Cano and my Bonneville here in London, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. We got a good one coming up for you. We're gonna talk with Nathan Millward who spent nine months on his motorcycle after only three days of planning. I don't know, is it me? The more we cover on this show, it seems like the fewer excuses that are left not to get out there and ride. Stick around, three day planning coming up next. Well, we're going to start off the show by saying welcome to 2015. This is the first official episode of Adventure Rider Radio for 2015. And as I mentioned on the last episode, we are now exceeding 10,000 downloads a month and climbing. So it's just an amazing way to be coming into a brand new year. And we're really grateful for you, the listener, for downloading. So Thank you. Today you're going to meet Nathan Millward, who's got a rather unique story. He's traveled from Sydney, Australia to London, England uh, in about nine months' time with only, as you heard in the intro, three days planning. Now, you're going to think it sounds ridiculous, it sounds impossible, and and it probably is, but you'll have to hear what he says about that. But he also went on to do another trip across uh, North America through the United States from coast to coast and up into Alaska. He wrote two books about it, and we're going to talk a little bit about those books. But he did all this on a postal bike. Now, in case you don't know what a postal bike is, Postal bike is. If you lived in Australia, you'd definitely know. This is a little 110 Honda motorcycle that's a step-through version. It's got an automatic clutch on it. It's really a lightweight bike. But what's unique about these postal bikes is that they've been built special for the Australian Postal Office. And they've got these heavy-duty hubs and, and heavy-duty suspension on it, so they're designed to carry quite a bit of weight. But really it's it's quite an unassuming machine for a world rider. Nathan chose this machine for probably the same reason most riders choose the machine, or at least they should. It's the bike he owned, it's the bike he liked, and it's the bike he felt confident in. But planning a trip that's 23,000 miles long in only three days, well, I can't explain that. You're going to have to hear it from Nathan. We caught up with Nathan at his home in London, England. I'm here with uh, Nathan Millward, who has um, got a bit of um, a penchant for a um, a tiny motorcycle, one that most people would not consider riding around the world on, but Nathan obviously has no problem going great distances on, and we're going to talk about that. Nathan, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jim. Thanks for having us on
0: let's let's just set the scene here. I mean you're um you're sort of vacationing in Australia. You don't really have any plans and and i'm gonna I'm going jump right to this one part because I think this is kind of fascinating in the whole story. Can you just tell me um, in in very briefly how long your trip was and how much time you spent planning it?
1: Uh, the, the trip was uh, two hundred and sixty four days so about nine months and um, twenty three thousand miles, eighteen countries and, and uh, three days of planning. Maybe two and a half, or I don't know, three, maybe.
0: A nine-month trip, and you have got two and a half. Oh, okay. Well, maybe three days of, <laughs> three. Of, of planning. So, so you're quite the planner, clearly. And and this is quite interesting. Tell us, you started out in Australia. What were you doing? You were vacationing in Australia.
1: I was kind of. I was chasing a girl uh, in Australia. Really, I think that's the true reason for being there. And uh, so I'd been out there nine months, um, and then uh, the visa was coming to an end. The relationship was coming to an end. And it was, uh, I did have a, 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 I could have flown home. I had a flight to come home the day my visa expired. And uh, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to come home to England. I had to leave Australia. I got this old 105 Honda CT110. Postal bikes are used for in Australia. And I got one of them just for getting around on.
0: Tell us about the postal bike. What, what it's used for in Australia.
1: Okay. So it's a Honda CT110, um, which I think they've stopped building everywhere else around the world in about the 80s, from what I believe. And then from what I gather, Honda up until this day have been building about three thousand a year for the Australian Postal Service. So they close down a factory in Japan, build three thousand on the C T one tens to the Australian postal spec. The Postal Service uses them for three years or about thirty thousand kilometers and then they retire them off. Um you can't buy them brand new as as a private individual. You can only get them once they've done the service and then you can get them at auction and you pay about, you know, a thousand dollars depending on condition. Because that's, that's the thing, depending on which postal guys at had it for those three years, it depends on whether it's a good bike or you know, whether it's been abused.
0: So the bikes are sort of readily available at auctions and things like that, and people pick them up mainly for running around the city doing short little jaunts.
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot of people buy and get around the beaches on them. They go Bondi Beach and places like that, you see a lot of guys on. Some have got modified, so they've got surfboard racks on the side of them and things like that. Um, people do do bigger trips. I'm not the first to do a big trip on, on it, but... I was inspired by a friend of mine who did a big trip around Australia on one, did a full lap of Australia on it. And I think that's what gave me the, the insight or the encouragement to think, you know, maybe the, it's a small bike, but it can go a long way. It's comfortable. I think that's, that's what you realize. It's, it's the, the, the performance of the speed of a bike on a, on a global trip is, is, a, is, a, is a lesser priority of them all. It's reliability, dependability, ability to carry some, a decent weight, a decent fuel range, and comfort. Uh, and serviceability. I think mean, you know they're the big factors. So the speed of it, I, I mean, it, it, it sounds like a novelty, trivial bike. But you know, in every sense but speed, it's a perfect bike. It's light. It is very com- comfortable. It's economical. Easy to service and repair. So um, it's got a lot going for it.
0: Let's go back then to so you're sitting in Australia. And your visa has has run out. You're going to have to leave the country, and you've got your plane ticket. And what makes you decide to turn and look at your postie bike that you've got sitting there? This old, um, you know, uh, heavily used uh, bicycle or a motorized bicycle. Don't call it the bicycle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
0: and you decide I'm going to ride this back to London. Tell us about that.
1: Oh, uh, I was just in a weird place. I, I I'd um. Like I said, I've been to Australia for a relationship. The relationship had not worked and I was frustrated. I think I was very angry with the circumstances. And I needed to exp- you know, get it out of my system. I think I just had a lot of frustration in me and I just needed to hit the road really. And, and I, I thought if I fly home, I'll just get mad. So I, I just I've got to get, I've just got to, I'm just going to hit the road. I've just got to le- try and leave it all behind and just take off. You know, I think that age old desire to leave it all behind and get lost in the world for a bit. So this trip was just perfect. It made perfect sense. It wasn't even a decision to make. It was like fly home. No, get on a bike and ride home. Yeah, that makes sense. Whenever I've got to go two days time, that'll be all right. I just need a few tools and maybe some new underpants and a pair of socks and take off. And that was it really. I got, I got the burning desire to do the trip and everything else was kind of irrelevant. The fact I didn't have enough money for the trip. I didn't have any planning. The bike was a, a bit of a nail and, uh, all that kind of irrelevant, just because inside, I just knew I had to get this trip out of me.
0: Nathan, were you a bike rider before?
1: Um, I'd not had a bike for about 10 years. I, I grew up a bit, did a bit of motocross. My, my brother and my dad got my brother into motocross Then me, and then I had a 50cc when I was 16. I had a one two five two straight stroke when I was 17, 18, and then didn't have a bike for about 10 years until I got this bike. So I can't say I'm an age-old biker, and I'd never done a big trip before either. I'd never traveled. I mean, I've been to Australia on a working holiday visa, but that's very different to, say, backpacking or, I don't know, climbing or, or any, anything else where you're out there on your own. This was the first time I'd really gone off on my own and done something. So, uh, and again, that's why that bike was good, because for some, I didn't know anything mechanically. I didn't, I didn't know I really had to fix a bike or service a bike. So I needed something with basic technology, and, and, and you know, I knew that bike. Oil change every 1,000 miles and a, and a valve clearance every four, and, and that was it. You'd actually
0: looked at the route. You considered riding a motorcycle from London uh, down to Australia to begin with. So you sort of had the, the route in your mind, but you've only got a couple of days before you have to leave.
1: You pull your things together. Uh, tell us about those last few days. Oh, I was just panic. It was just a blur of uh, making lists and, and uh, looking at dates. And uh, I mean, we, Basically, um, when I went to see immigration, they said you've got to leave at the end of the month. I got 20 days. I figured that at the speed I could go at, it would take me at least 16 days to to ride to darwin to get the cargo boat to east timor which was the route so i figured right that's what that's what gave me those few days of planning to get ready basically uh in that time i rang the cargo agency in darwin and said when when's the boat when's the next boat to east timor thankfully one went the day before my visa expired so that that took one day off but uh, that was good enough and they sailed every 10 days so i had to be on that, that particular boat uh, the next issue was, uh, was a car passage, uh, the a Passage, the bike passport for, you know, for need to travel. Called the RAC uh, Australian branch and, and said, look, you know, I'm, I'm desperate to get out of the country by this day. Is there anything you can do? And they, they said, yeah, ride up to Rockhampton on the East Coast. You can process your application there. And then by the time you're riding from Rockhampton to Darwin, uh, which is about 2,000 miles or I think thereabouts, you know, we'll, we'll process it and, and you can, we'll, we'll, post to, we'll post it to somebody in Darwin. I mean, it only thankfully that I met I met a couple at um, a rest stop somewhere north of Sydney that they said you know, they said you need we've got a son in Darwin if you need any help so he was the one I had the carnage posted to um, and then there was there was issues had been a flash flood in the outback so the main road across the outback had closed and there was a, a real concern as to whether it would open in time and if it didn't then I wouldn't make that boat and if it did then I just and I would, and it, it literally opened the evening before I got to it. To, the, to where I needed to cross, where it had been washed away. So it was. Uh, it was setting off in a complete state of panic. I, I forgot to take a tent. I forgot tie levers. I forgot. Everything, I forgot to tell my mum and dad. I had to tell them like three days after I set off. And you know, forgot to help. tell
0: your mum and dad So you would <laughs> left. You get on the road and you realize, oops, I forgot to tell anyone what I'm doing. Uh,
1: I didn't forget. As I saw, you know, we all have these crazy ideas. I think all every one of us, regardless whether it's motorcycle or what. We have these ideas, and as soon as we mention them to people, they go, "No, nah, that's a stupid idea," or, or "You don't want to do that," or they put so much doubt inside your head that you don't do it, and you and you talk yourself out of it. And, and I, I thought this is that one time I don't need anybody to talk me out of it. You know, the, the girlfriend I was with at the time, she was very encouraging. She said, "Look, you know, you've got to do this. You've talked about it. You want to do it? Just just go and do it." So she was one positive voice, and I needed that, but I didn't need anybody going. But what, what about you know? And I knew if I'd have rang my mum, she'd bless her. She'd have gone. But what about your money? What about this. She'd have come up with so many reasons and I'd probably gone, yeah, you're right, I, should, I shouldn't really do it. I should wait and save up and all that and I should learn about my bike maintenance and I should get a better bike and I mean I should get some proper shoes rather than Converse and all them sort of things. So I thought, I'll I'll tell her when I've hit road and then it's too late, she can't talk me out of it. So I emailed her from a, a McDonald's in, I don't know, about three nights, three days up from Sydney. And just, you know, email say, hey, you know, good news, I'm on my way home. That's my thing. <laughs> Might take me a while, I'm coming home on a motorbike and I got a phone call. I did have a mobile, Australian mobile, and she rang me the next day. She was like just apocalyptic with, with rage and worry and anguish. And I said, "It's all right. It'll be fine." I think my dad were a bit more, uh, pragmatic, and he he just said, "You know, it'll be all right. It'll be it'll be all right." But uh, so that's where it started. Really, it just complete spur of the moment. Um, circum the circumstances though were perfect. Um, it, it the easy decision was to take off on a motorbike. The odd decision was to fly him on on a plane. So. I was blessed with the for, fortune and the circumstances, really.
0: So off you went. You, you did end up making it to the ferry terminal in your allotted time. But what was that trip across, that short distance, dare I say, of your big trip right across Australia? What was that trip like before you oh, got to the, the panic. ferry? I
1: mean, It was just, uh, so I set off and I flat out up the coast, up the east coast. I've got everything I owned on the back. i got a milk crate full of fuel, spare fuel and oil and Got all my belongings I've got so much stuff. I just full throttled all the way up up East Coast, you know, revving it out. And I knew the engine were not great when I set off. I mean, the the headlight didn't always work on this bike, and it got some spokes were missing. And I knew it didn't sound right. I knew engine shouldn't sound like it did. I thought, but you know, again, it were one of things that it would have stopped me doing it if I'd have stopped and thought about it. Because I'd got it booked in to see a mechanic in Sydney, but he couldn't get me an appointment soon enough before I needed to set off. So I thought, "I'll, I'll set off and figure it out. So. So I'm riding up East Coast flat out doing about, I don't know, 85 kilometers an hour, which felt quick, really, but I know it's not. But so, I mean, I'd have to ride 14, 15 hours a day. That would do me about 500 kilometers. And that's what I was working on, that what calculations I'd made. But anyway, as I was coming up to Brisbane, I knew there was a posty bike specialist called 110 Motorcycles just outside Brisbane. And I thought I'll stop, stop by there and get him to look at the bike, maybe service it, let me know what's, what's wrong, and maybe I can get some spares and things like that. And uh, I pulled up to his place uh, I'd stayed in Brisbane that night, uh, get a uh, backpackers, and I rode to his shop next morning. You know, and when he pulls up, and I'm sat waiting for him, he, he says, "Oh, where are you, you know, where are you off to?" I said, I'm "Trying to get to England, like." And you know, he he took one look at it, and he didn't think I were quite right in Ed. And um, <laughs> it's, I, said, I said, I don't think bikes sounding very well though." He said, "Well, fire it up and like, let's have a listen." So I fired it up, and he's like, "Yeah, that's never going to make you ting- get you tingling." He said, "Bottom end's clearly on its way out. It was knocking." And when I listened, I took a little video at the time and when I listen back it the bottom end it's it's there's so much knock in it it, uh, it says no nah, mate you'll never get to England on that it might not even make it to Darwin sort of thing so I was like right okay so uh, and uh, again it were an option to quit at that point I could have bought, pulled out of it he said I can put your new engine in or recondition this one or and he says well what about what about this bike and, and he got a posty bike so it's so, so exactly the same model but it, it was 2004. And it had, uh, it had been, it had done service in Queensland, uh, postal rounds. And then it had been bought by a guy called Colin, 51-year-old guy. I think he had a few mental issues in, in his time. And he bought this bike and set it up for riding around the Outback on. He put a big tank on it off, off an XR250, a tent rack, sheepskin seat cover. He basically set this 105 up for touring on. And it, it was an immaculate thing. It had done 40,000 kilometres and it, it ran and looked brand new. It in Fantastic audition. And the owner of the bike shop said look you know if you're serious about getting tingling like this on a posty bike because that's the thing i couldn't afford a better bike anyway really he said if you're serious and this this bike will get your way so he gave me seven hundred dollars trading on that one I, I, I set off on and i paid him i think seventeen hundred dollars on top for this for this what was dorothy colin had call it dorothy after his favorite character from a wizard of oz so I, I kind of adopted this dorothy and uh but well, that was it. That, that was from that moment on. Uh, that bike took me to England. It just needed, well, it didn't need anything. Front sprocket, uh, punchers and, and that rear, a few new spokes in Kazakhstan. And then that same bike took me from New York to Alaska
0: that's really amazing that you start out, you know, on your bike, just sort of with a, the faith that you said missing spokes, which really, I think for a lot of people, that's really going to jump out. Like, wow. Um, you you know. just start out with this faith that you're going to, you're going to do this. And then you stumble across the perfect bike. I mean, extended range it tank was. and, and ride, I mean, that's amazing.
1: It was just fate. You know, this bike was in the shop and it was just, it was there poised, ready for me to turn up and take it. Yeah. It, it sounds it was, like it. It was just fate. And, um, it was, you know, I I went, I slept on a campsite that night when I first got there, and, and uh, he said, "Go home and go go and sleep on it, and, and come back in the morning." And I, and I went back to campsite near his bike shop, and I thought, it, "You know, I, I'm I serious. If I'm serious about getting to England, this I've just got to do it." And at that point, I still didn't know if the road had opened to Darwin. I, you know, I really didn't know if I was going to get there, um, but I thought I've got to try. I've got to I've got to give myself the best opportunity. I mean, sensibly, I should have probably carried on on the first bike. And got somehow got to Darwin if engine had made it, et cetera. But thought, no, I'm serious about this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. And I, and I, you know, credit card again, I only got five grand to do this trip with on all my credit cards overdraft. So I just put, I just put 1200 quid down on that. And then a few days later, I got to Rockhampton, $900 on, on my Carne. I still didn't know if we'll get to Darwin because the road we're close. It was close. It was just, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm, I'm gonna, I, I just need to do it. I need to get there. And I just kept riding like across the outback once I turned off, off from the coast. I'd, just, I'd get up at five in the morning, ride right through to late at night, just ride. And across the outback, there's nobody else out there. So you're just ticking along. And what I'd obviously, what I'd been, I'd thrashed the bike up the East Coast, the first bike. And Joe said, Look, if, if you're going to get this bike all the way to, to England, you, you need to do two things. You need to change oil every thousand miles, and you don't have to thrash it. Just find its happy medium and potter along at like that. So I've, sort of settled into a 60 kilometer lope and i'd just do you know 14 15 hours doing 60 kilometers an hour just just calculating mid, mid distances and how far i'd need to to ride or how many hours i need to ride to get to the next stop and, and across the outback you don't you don't there's no there's nothing for say 250 kilometers and you get to a homestead where you get fuel and gas fuel and fuel and uh, maybe accommodation if you need it and so i just i just spent a few days doing that just sat in a bubble, daydreaming along as, you know, as I did all these just did these hours to get to this this boat. And
0: well, at sixty kilometers an hour, you're seeing an awful lot, aren't you? I mean, really, you're, oh, yeah, you're yeah. going I mean, slow that's... enough that you're getting to take everything in. What what do you do for water and on all your supplies? You're, you're carrying everything with you, of course.
1: Carry, yeah, I mean, just carry. it. Uh, I didn't care and didn't really get any camping proper camping gear until I got to Kyrgyzstan. Six you know, eight months into my trip, I, I just. It was calamitous. The entire trip was calamitous from beginning to end. It was it was poorly structured, poorly organized.
0: Yeah. But what I see from it is it's the determination. You had the idea in your head of what you wanted to do. And, uh, you know, anyone, you know, any practical thinking wasn't going to get in the way and clearly it didn't. I mean, you sort of made that leap of faith and, and you, everything came together for you.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, um, nothing would have stopped me on that trip. I would, I would determined as determined it can be to, to get to England and nothing was going to stop me. I, I, some some tricky moments and you, know, you really have to push through sometimes. As, as anybody who's done any kind of trip will know, there's some really rough hard times when you're out there on your own. And I think that, that they're the testing times. But but even you know as an example coming across the outback, some of the other rivers were flooded across the roads. You, you know the roads were still open, but the rivers were flooded across them. And people had, a few times people would say, do you want me to put your bike in the back of our, our you know trailer and we'll trailer it across? And like, no, I'm, I'm riding this road. I'm, I'm, I'm riding to England. And I, and I'd sort of wade through it bike and, you know, sensibly I should have just put my bike in a trailer, but I was just determined to keep, to ride it. And I, I think that's how I got to England really, just was so determined. The
0: bike is not a, a large bike, obviously. And, um, you have to put all your supplies on it. What sort of weight could you carry on this? I mean, you, clearly you're limited by how much you can take.
1: Well, no, not really. See, because this is the beauty of the postal bike is, uh, and because Honda worked with the postal service to build them this perfect postal bike. They'd, they'd put stiffer springs in, and, and so you, the bike was rated to carry a rider plus forty kilos. Mm, so it, was, had, it was
0: really more suited than than what you yeah. would think looking at a bike like this.
1: Yeah, yeah, and um, they'd, they'd put thicker spokes in, even such details as the front spindle block at the bottom of the forks on the original models that you got in America and initially in Australia. They were sort of an oval footed clamp sort of thing. And, and and they'd snap out the posty guys when they were in the curbs and things, they'd, they'd snap the spindle out, out the, out the, the block. So they'd even revise the, the spindle block to make it extra, you know, robust. So it didn't have that. So the, over the years, just refined this bike to be such a perfect utility bike. For the postal service, so and it's a shame they've discontinued it this year and they've gone for like a cheap Honda, like a cub replica, which is not going to be nowhere near as robust. Also, such things as you have got a center, a side stand on either side, depending on the camber of the road. Was it's if the delivery mail on one side, they need the side stand on one side. Delivery it on the other side of the road, they need it on the other. So it's got a two side stands and a center stand, and even that alone is 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 really cool and useful. Um. So again, it, apart from speed, it's, it was a good buy.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's much more suited than what the, the listener would think just by imagining a, a small Honda motorcycle. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a very tiny. But So you ended up getting to the ferry, but you had some problems with, um, with your Carnet. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, um, so the Carnet I applied for in Rockhampton, and they said, we'll post it ahead, and I, I gave them this address. Of this stranger whose parents I'd met at a rest stop, you know, a few days before I didn't even know who it was. I just called him ahead and said, can I have this document sent to you? Yep. No problem. So, um, I got to Darwin the night before my boat was, or two days before my boat was due to set sail. But, um, so the car had to arrive the next day and it didn't. Uh, so it was like, oh, you know, stuff come all that way, bought the bike and, and, and everything. And it, it looked like I, I'd be, uh, thwarted i mean i could have got the, the 10 day later ferry but then i would be nine days over my visa so that wasn't really a good option uh, i called the cargo agency and they said you know don't worry that the boat's been delayed a day so that gave me one extra day for the carney to arrive and thankfully it did and it came that next day put the bike on a cargo boat the next morning to east timor and and uh, i had to fly i couldn't travel on the cargo boat and i had to fly directly into east timor and i think i got there at like seven in the morning again I, it was such a rush to get on that plane I didn't know anything about East Timor. I didn't know where I was going to stay. I didn't have any contacts. I didn't have anything. And I'd never been to Asia before. And I mean, East Timor's, you know, it's really um, the toe of Asia. It's, it's not much. There's no tourism there as such. Uh, it had been in a, a, a kind of civil war for a lot of years. The UN were there. The aid agencies were there. It had only just got its independence from Indonesia. And uh, so I just landed and I was absolutely terrified. I was completely out of my depths. I didn't know where to go. And I just sat. I remember I got off the plane and you just arrive at this little arrivals building and I sat on a chair and, and I just had to bury my head my head in my hands because taxi drivers wanted to take me somewhere everywhere and you know urging me to get into their taxis and the, the noise and the heat and the commotion and I just, I just didn't know what to do or where to go. I was terrified. My bike wasn't going to be a week. For, it was going to take a week to arrive on the boat. And then I spotted this lady you know, a, a white lady, an Australian lady, she turned out to be, uh, she was. She dropped somebody else off and I darted out to her and said, you know, I don't know if you can help me, but I've just landed. I haven't a clue what I'm doing or where I'm going. And, uh, you know, do you know anywhere I, where I can stay? And she said, yeah, there is a hostel in town. I'll, I'll, I'm going that way. I'll drop you off. Um, and that that was there begun my adventure through Indonesia, really. And that so it was such a in at the deep end, learn as you go along. Expedition. It was. I was terrified for the first few weeks in East Timor and in Indonesia. I was terrified, just completely out my depths, Um, scared. I I think I got started to get paranoia, uh, whether it's from the malaria tablets or just feeling that. Oh my god! I can't believe I'm out here on my own. I've got. I didn't have a phone or anything. Obviously, didn't have have any contact with anyone, and I didn't know much about maintenance. I think the reality set in 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 East Timor, and uh, it took it took me a good month to. acclimatised to what I was doing I think
0: it's really something to, to do any sort of trip and most trips do you know when someone goes on on a large a long trip they end up doing a lot of planning in advance here you've just left on a whim i mean yeah i can see that would be completely unnerving but incredibly again there even as you say you're sitting there and you're feeling out of your element completely and and discombobulated in this strange place all of a sudden something happens something is presented to you as as another little light at the end of your tunnel so you go a little bit further how long did it take you before you actually go into the rhythm of traveling where things were becoming more work a day for you
1: um i think those first few islands you go you go east timor then over the border into west timor uh and then it's uh, flores and lombok bali it took me about to wait a week for the bike and then maybe another 10 days to get to bali because i only had a 30-day visa for indonesia i'd really underestimated indonesia uh, i thought That's, you know a month visa is fine uh But then I lost a week because the the the, the, there were storms, so the ferries were cancelled between the islands. So, I really had to sadly had to rush to Indonesia. Indonesia is an amazing place to ride, Um, but I did have to rush, and I got to Bali and I took a day out there. I Took a couple of days just to to catch my breath, and I think from that moment on, I I sort of learned that not everybody's out to kill me, and you know there aren't shad ghosts lurking on every street corner. And I don't know. I really I, I finally calmed down. I think I'd been hypersensitive to everything until Bali and then I I sort of gathered my breath and sort of I I manned up a bit I thought you know you just calm down you know take a breath just just chill out it's gonna be fine it's gonna be fine and um so I carried on traveling through through Java and at this stage I was I was finding little homesteads and nasty little hotels to stay in at night which were cheap but they were never very pleasant Uh, some a lot of them were kind of part brothel type dens, it weren't it just weren't a pleasant accommodation on an evening because Indonesia's not very touristic at all. So you don't find campsites, you don't find back, backpacker places across Java, etc. You just find local hotels and some of them are very a bit seedy, but the, it's the best that you've got. And then as I moved into Sumatra, which is a, a much more rural island than Java, I finally thought, you know, I've, I've got to I've got to start to being self sufficient. I've got to be able to camp and, and that was the first night I camped wild in in Sumatra in Indonesia and I just found this field off the side of the road and found this wicker shelter that must have been previously used by the farmhands or whatever there and um I remember there was a massive terrific storm that night and I, I just put my tent up under this this shelter and I, I think I finally again realized that I've got everything I need on the back of my bike to sort of survive this i got my tent sleeping bag I carried a bit of water I got a bag of sweets that night I remember I got no real food I just got some sweets and I just sat there and it was just, it was just a magic evening, a really magic moment of the trip. And uh, from that moment on, I just camped wild, wild as much as I could. So wherever I was, I camped wild. Apart from when I was got to sort of Delhi and Bangkok, I'd, I'd stay in cheap hostels there. But across Russia, Kazakhstan, Pakistan, parts of India, Thailand, I camped wild and loved it. You know, I love camping wild.
0: At this time, when you're when you're sitting there in your tent in this storm in your first campsite, did you know you're going to be nine months on the road? Was that part of the plan?
1: No, I, I thought it'd take maybe five or six months. I I, I really underestimated it at nine. Uh, the, the the problem was because I I'd, I'd not planned anything. I, I had so many periods where I had to to wait to progress. Um, say like I'm trying to think, India was a good example. Um, I had I had almost six weeks in Delhi trying to figure out the way ahead. Because it turned out I couldn't get a visa for Iran. The 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 embassy there weren't very keen on the British and the Iranians were having a bit of a political stoush at the time. and we weren't getting on, so they were refusing a lot of visas for British people to go through Iran, as they were Canadian, American, Australians as well at the time. And um, so that that sort of blocked me. because so I got my Pakistan visa, but I couldn't get without an Iranian visa. I was really stuck. Stuck. And um, it took me six weeks to organise alternative route through China, which was a, a, a big effort to organize but so it was things like that that really held me up uh, i don't don't think the speed of the bike had any impact on the duration of the trip it was just the fact it was unplanned so it was a neg- every country was a negotiation because i know a couple of new zealand guys who followed followed me about two years later on posty bikes they did miss indonesia but they did it in something like three and a half months or something
0: well, that's interesting that you say that a bike that you're cruising at at 60 kilometers an hour, 60 kilometers an hour. I mean, that's not fast. And you're saying that did not extend the, the your trip. It didn't drag you out. So you, you felt that was a good traveling speed.
1: Yeah, and I think it does, it's a speed that doesn't tire you out. Um, I, like I say, I could do, some days I did 18 hours a day on it. And it, never t- it didn't tire me. I, I never got weary from riding um because of that speed you, you're not having to concentrate on the speed and the traffic you you're kind of just lost in your world and um so I could still do 400 miles a day but I could do 400 miles every day for about a week so I, I will so the proverbial torts in the hair is a very true story when it comes to motorcycle adventure um I mean obviously somebody like Nick Sanders could b- obliterate me and there's no way I could keep up but your average rider and I, I encountered that across America and I'd be coming up the Oregon coast and you know, I'd meet groups of bikers and they'd fly past me, and then I'd overtake them as they stopped for coffee and a cigarette, and then they'd fly past me, and then I'd, I'd catch up with them again. And so, uh, yeah, even at 60 kilometers an hour, it doesn't imp- impede your ability to cover distance. You just have to spend more hours on the bike. But I would argue the hours on the bike are slightly easier than if you on you know, if you. And I also needed it. I'm the sort of person who, if I could have done 100 miles an hour, I would have done 100 miles an hour. Uh, but that bike it forced me to slow down it forced me to see things it forced especially across america it forced me to take the the back roads and it forced me to meet people so for somebody who likes to race and to charge it's a perfect sort of antidote to that it forces you to slow down so uh, sometimes you, you you know you curse it that that's how fast you can go and when you're pushing your bike over over the himalayas and things like that because you don't have enough power to get up it really frustrates you but it means you meet people, you see things, yeah, and and it just brings a different. Uh, I think it brings a different, completely different perspective to a trip. Um, ideally, I, could, I wish I could cruise at eighty kilometres an hour. I think that'd be better, but you know, you, you make do with what you've got, don't you? Sort of thing.
0: As you're travelling along, were you
1: keeping connected with anyone through social media? Um, I mean, I did a bit. I blogged quite a bit on ADV Rider initially on the Sydney London trip um i blog quite a lot on that and it was, that was a it was a good and a bad thing i think the more you try and blog because initially you, i i think you get your ego gets a little bit uh, um you know, you, you want to tell everybody what you're up to you want to you want people to go wow that's cool Look what you are doing and then so you you try and gain generate an audience and try and keep your audience happy but then after a bit you think no wait a minute i'm doing this trip to get away to be alone to so have that isolation, and the more you try and blog about it, you know, the more you lose sight of that isolation, uh, and you sort of letting the outside world in, and you don't want that. You want it to be your world. You want it to be your. If you don't want to, if you don't, if you want to arrive at a place and not blog, then that's that's you want to be able to do that. Whereas when you start putting it out there, you, people expect, people start to expect. They expect photos, they expect blogs, they expect videos, and you can end up just. Traveling for the people's sake, not your own, and I, and when I see people doing trips now, and they're starting off almost like with a media plan and, and a big website and a big launch, and I think you're really setting yourself up for a fall there, or, or for a, a, sort of a, a bit of a contradiction of what you want out of your trip. Do you want to get away and enjoy your adventure, or do you want to tell the world about your adventure? And I don't think you can do both, not easily, anyway. Uh, so I, I learned that for the America trip. I didn't blog about it. I put it on Face. I updated people on Facebook, but that was nice. I'd stop at McDonald's. I'd I'd get my laptop, laptop out, put in my memory card for my camera, update a photo and just say, "Yep, still alive, just in, you know, Detroit or wherever I was and carry on. Um, and that for me was, that suited me on that second trip.
0: Well, the listener may not know yet, but, um, after you did your long ride home to London, you ended up doing a a trip across America, which we'll talk a little bit about as well. Oh, sorry, I know I was
1: leaping ahead Jim, sorry. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's okay. I sort of think uh, that's the way you do things. Just, you know, just leap that, <laughs> just go for it. But, but um, you at one point, um, well, let me let me first talk about finances. I mean, you started with a certain amount of money, you ended up having to buy a bike for 1700 quid, as you said, uh, or at least 1700 totally. extra. And you've made various things, your trip will take longer than what it's supposed to. How was the budget holding up?
1: It didn't. It didn't hold up at all. It was, it was, it, by the time I got to India, I was got, it was gone. It was it busted completely. Um, It was just costing a lot. I mean, my day-to-day budget daily, I'd spent I'd allocate 10 pounds for fuel, food and accommodation if I needed it. And in everywhere I'd been Asia, that was, that was, that was enough. You know, you could live on 10 pound a day because the fuel didn't take, the bike didn't take much fuel, food I'd eat dead cheap, as cheap as I could. If I camped wild, then it would even less than 10 pounds. But it's all—it's all the other costs that add up: the admin, the carne, the shipping costs to East Timor. It was having to fly the bike over Burma because I couldn't transit it. It's all those costs which you just can't avoid and you can't escape them. The visa for Pakistan, for example, was—I think—hundred pounds or eighty or something like that. And that was—I'll quickly tell that story. Uh, you're not Pakistan normally insists you have to get your visa from your own embassy, your home embassy. So when I got to Bangkok and went to the Pakistan embassy, the guy said, "No, no, you're going to have to go." You're going to have to get it from the English embassy. I'm like, well, I'm riding to England. Uh, you know, I do, That's not. That's kind of where I'm trying to get to. He said, no, no, you're going to have to get home to England. And I walked away from his desk and I thought, oh, I'm going to have to fly home to get a visa to come back to ride my bike. Out. I was almost prepared to do that. And I thought, no, no, I can't let this. I can't let it be like this. So I went back up to him and I said, look, is there, you know, I kind of pleaded with him. And he said, he kind of relented. He said, what bike are you on? Here? I said, a 105cc Australian Post bike. And he said, 500cc well you know he kind of was appalled that uh, that's the size of the bike i was on that said no no it's a 105 cc and he kind of laughed and went and he, he just relented and he went oh, okay okay and uh, he said give me a passport and uh it's a 80 80 pounds which i think was a, a, a way above the rate Oops, I'm and um he gave me a visa uh, for pakistan and it, it, was, it was it was moments like that again which I don't know. When you put yourself out there, things just seem to have to work. They, they work out because they have to work out. And, uh, um,
0: and, and you got to not give up at the first yeah. sign of refusal. I mean, they're the guys telling you no, and you're, you're going back and sort of, he's already told, you no, but you're still going back and asking them again.
1: Yeah. You've just got to go for it. So, so, so those costs really mount up those static, unavoidable costs. You know, even if you, even if you lived on bread and water, you, uh, uh, and cycled you'd still you've still got all well that's the beauty of cycling you don't have all these costs, etc. but yeah so it, by the time i got to india my budget would gone and um but it, it was a, it was a surprising thing back in bangkok i'd sent out a load of postcards to the magazines and stuff saying look i'm on this trip I, i'm kind of running a bit low on money can i write something for you and you know and could could we do something could you do a bit on my trip just help me out and uh, i sent one to the sydney morning herald in, in, in australia obviously and um he said, Yeah, yeah, write us like 500 words and we'll pay you $200. So, right, so I wrote them 500 words, made it to Bangkok. I'm looking at going over, crossing over Burma into India, et cetera. And I never thought anything more of it. And then when I was in India, I just stopped in a place called uh, Kawajaro, uh, the home of the erotic temples, um, not far from Agra, where the Taj Mahalis And I just stopped and checked my emails. And I got this email from the, the commissioner, the editor of HarperCollins Australia. He says, just read your piece in, uh, you know, Sydney Morning Arrow. Sounds an interesting trip. Do you want to write? Have you ever thought about writing a book? Well, yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, Because I suppose you'd think, oh, maybe this could make a book when you're riding, You think it's kind of interesting. And I'd worked as as a car journalist before, so I'd done a bit of writing. And they said, okay, well, you know, uh, sign this. We'll send you a contract, sign contracts, and we'll pay you a first stage of your advance, which were about, I don't know, about £3,000, I think it worked out to be. And it was that three thousand pounds which allowed me to finish the rest of the trip from India, because uh, to get through China it was two thousand dollars. Because to be escorted, you go through China with your own vehicle, you have to be escorted, you have to be met by a guide at the border, and they have to sort of take you through, and uh, it's 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 almost a, a, a tourist tax as much as anything. Um, so yeah, this book deal paid for the rest of the trip, which was incredible, really, because uh, otherwise I don't know how I would have got home from India. But just had to fly or or something or.
0: Um, yeah, and many people will listen to that and, and sort of slap their forehead and go, "What?" Because people chase publishers down for books. Know you know, they, they're, they're they're submitting their manuscript, and here you just get an email, and then get you know your your financing for the rest of your trip. I mean, that's amazing stuff. Yeah. Well, you went on to write the book for them, but you since then self published, right? I, mean, I think they only did the the Australian continent, and they weren't interested in going worldwide with it.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I, I I'm too stubborn, I think, to work. work. Because what you, what, what you do when you when somebody wants to publish your book, you, you sell them the rights to your story. You don't sell them the rights to your words. You sell them the rights to your story. So I think the reality is it's very nice to be published and it helps the ego and people. It, it impresses people to say you've been a published author. But the reality is you, you're left with nothing. You get 10% of book sales. You feel like you're part of this big corporate machine of churning out books they don't really take an interest in, in you or your trips. And, and I was like, can we do more books? You know, is if, can, can we get, turn this into doing a series of books? And I, I think I'm too stubborn and too, uh, I don't know. I don't work well under people. So it wasn't a happy relationship. And, and when they said they're not going to launch it in us in England, which is my, obviously my home country, I just thought, this is ridiculous. I've re- I spent a year locked away in a shed writing this book. And it's nobody's going to read it apart from in Australia and it, it really bothered me and um, so I got my rights back and self published it which I can't say is the easiest thing in the world to do self- publishing but it, it's it feels more rewarding because it's your at the end of the day it's your trip it's your product so let's just go back to the trip for a
0: minute here when you were you are, um, you're, you're talking about going through China just give us a, an idea of what the rest of the trip was like heading back to London
1: what from India yeah oh, from India so I got a 10-day visa for Pakistan, and the, the usual route would be west from Pakistan into Iran, and then Turkey, straight home that way, quite easy. Obviously, I couldn't get the Iranian visa, so I organized the China route, and it all just fell into place again. The last day I could enter, the, the Pakistan visa was dated, and effectively, the, the, suit, the earliest date the Chinese guy could meet me at the border with Pakistan was the last day the Pakistan visa was active. So again, it all just fell into place. So I rode into Pakistan. I had 10 days. I went into Lahore, then rode north through Islamabad along the Karakoram Highway over the Himalayas. Um, I mean, over a 5,000 meter pass, that that was the biggest test for the bike, really. Um, I mean, it's a carbureted bike, seven horsepower standard. And anything over 3,000 meters really kills it. But anything over 5,000 meters kills you and the bike. So that was kind of a bit gnarly going over that. into China, and then I just had a week, I was met at the border, Pakistan China, east border, uh, by a guy called Abdul, who escorted me to Kashgar in the west of China, in the Xinjiang province, and then uh, I had a few nights in a hotel there, and then west he escorted me to, Ka- to the border with Kyrgyzstan. Um, then into Kyrgyzstan, by the in Kyrgyzstan I needed some parts for the bike, so I had a few weeks waiting around there. Um, I had to glue in the sump plug in, in Kyrgyzstan, because the sump plug had rounded Joe back in Australia sent me out a, a tapping tool to rethread it, but I made a right mess of that. So I just glued the sump plug in in Kyrgyzstan and with still with 7,000 miles left to ride, I rode it and to keep changing, changing the oil, I'd, I'd take the wing mirrors off, lay the bike on its side and then upright onto its handlebar. So it was inverted <laughs> and then drain the oil out the, the, the <laughs> entrance, you know, the filler hole and drain it out. So I carried on doing thousand mile oil changes. And uh, that's just how it had to be. From Kyrgyzstan to Russia to Kazakhstan, Russia, Ukraine, Poland, and then uh, Germany, France. So, but by, by the time I got to Kyrgyzstan, I'd been on the road for almost eight months. And as soon as the door opened on that final ride I just, I just rode, just rode relentlessly. I just, just went for it. And um, in in uh, Kazakhstan, the bike started stru- stuttering and struggling. By that point, it wouldn't do more than fifty-five kilometers an hour. So through Kazakhstan, it was slow going. Through Russia, it was even slower. Ukraine, I mean, uh, and I was just desperate to get home. I retired. I was I was bought, fed up of being on the road. I was skint. So I just straight-lined it, like motorways of Poland, the Autobahn of Germany. I just gunned it you know, at 55 and just riding endlessly. I'd just sleep in, in laybys and behind edge bottoms. I'd just, wherever, wherever I could sleep, I'd sleep. And then I finally made it to Calais, and uh, yeah, cross that and crossed that next morning, and that was it. Sort of trip over, really. Uh, it was so, so surreal getting to England. I you know, nine months earlier, I'd left on a complete whim, riding across Sydney Harbour Bridge. Nine months later, after all their miles, I kind of made it to England, and it it was just weird. It was the most surreal, because I don't think I'd ever stopped to really take it in during that during the nine months. I'd always been pushing and pushing and pushing, and, and trying to figure stuff out. And then to finally get to England, it would just, it just, the world stopped. Um, and I, I no, no longer had to sleep in edge bottoms and things like that, which quite saddened me. So I slept in a shed for a, a month or so just to re- readjust, <laughs> re-acclimatize into civilized, yeah. a, so civilized society.
0: Looking back now on that trip in particular, and, and I sort of think I know the answer because you went ahead and did another trip on this bike, but how do you feel about the Posty bike um, after riding it for all that time? And, and I'm really not allowed spe-
1: to swear, am I, Jim?
0: <laughs> it's best if you don't. I'll just have to take it out. I
1: uh, effing hated it. I hated the bike. I hated what it, had, how far it had brought me. I hated the sight of the thing. I hated it. It just... Because... You go riding in search of answers and 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 solutions and cures you know you don't you don't do a trip like this for just to see to see the world or to have a good time i mean when people say oh it must have been a great holiday like it went you know it's not holiday and it you go through some real miserable times in the hope of reaching this climatic perfect ending where life becomes perfect and everything is fixed and you are now hercules Yeah, and you you can everything's perfect in the world, but you get to the end of a trip, and it's just for me anyway. It was complete opposite. I I thought I was riding uphill, in actual fact, I was riding downhill, and I found myself in a in a deep rut, and I I was in that rut for I don't know two or three years until I finally found Dorothy again, and that's when I did America. Just I've got to get back on bike because if I don't get back on bike, I'm just going to go mad, mental, and that's when I did America just to. I don't know to to test myself again to get back out and move in and to just to see if it was a fluke see if I could do it again do it on my own terms without that sort of push that I had back in Australia.
0: That wasn't the answer I was I was expecting actually but I thought I, you were going to say that you you loved it. So you get the bike home, Dorothy, and you leave it sit there and you just sort of ignore it. Uh, you don't know, turn your head as you walk by it for a, a couple of years until you decide to take it to America
1: no every time i looked at it i went you, you bitch <laughs> uh, and, and because as well especially when you write a book you you become attached magnetically attached to that moment in time And you can't everywhere you go it's a, it's a book and it's a trip and you, you know nathan who wrote that book or nathan who did that trip and you're like oh i'm just sick of this trip i'm sick of this bike i'm sick of this and i just got sick of it I'm bored of it T- bored of talking about sydney to london i've got bored of writing about it i obviously, when you write write a book, you you know you are then obliged to publicise it or try and sell some copies. Or Otherwise, it's just a waste of time. As well, sat and wrote, "I love you a million times" on your shed wall. Um, I mean, you've got to really get out there and try and sell it. And I just got sick of it, absolutely sick of the neck. So finally, Dorothy got a rebuild. I thought by coming across Kazakhstan at fifty-five kilometers an hour, I thought she'd need a complete overhaul. Yet yeah, me and my dad took her apart in the in the garage at the bottom of the parents' garden, and she needed a, a cam chain, piston rings, and clutch plates. And that's all she had in her. She at that point done 80,000 kilometres. Original engine, everything original on her. Nothing touched apart from the sump plug. I had that redrilled and re-threaded in England. And that was it. Put the engine back together and it was, it was ready to go again. And I, I kept talking myself out of it. Would, there must be something else. Maybe settle down, get a job. You know, that, those kind of parental concerns that all parents have. Uh, towards the children and you think you know, I'll try and please them I'll do the right thing and then I thought no nah, I can't do this I'm just mad so I, uh, one morning I rode down to Heathrow and I, I knew a shipping agency just outside Heathrow and I just took a bike and I said look when can you take it to New York he said right it'll be there in three days so I, I went right have it there in three days and I flew two days later and I got there the day before bike and again no, I had 500 pounds this time to do America Okay, hang on.
0: Back <laughs> up here. You mean to say you, you just made it sound like you just rode down there? Was was there any planning? Did you do your three day no, due diligence? No, planning?
1: no I planning. Basically, what happened? It was the most surreal. So it's it's, this last five years has been surreal. There's not been a, a non surreal moment in it. But basically, I'm in New, i were in England. I'd got my bike rebuilt. I didn't know what which way to turn in in life. I'd I'd lost my way. So on one day, two New, New Zealand guys turn up on my doorstep with a bit of prior notice, had emailed me for an address. They turned up and said, two years ago, or whatever it was, we read about you in, in a magazine in Australia. And we thought, we're going to do that. And these two 40-year-old blokes with wives and kids, they got leave of absence from the wives and kids. And they bought postie bites. And these were the ones I mentioned earlier. And they'd, they'd, they'd ridden my route from Sydney to London on postie bites. And they turned up on my doorstep to, to say hello. And, they, and it was the most surreal, reverse, <laughs> um, um uh, what's the word reverse uh motivation uh, uh insp- inspiration reverse inspiration i'd ever known these guys turned up and i thought my god this is incredible and uh, i lived up in yorkshire about 200 miles north of london and they said why don't you ride back with us to london because we're putting our bike on a- using the same shipping agency to send our bikes back to new zealand all right i'll ride down with you and it was riding down with them that i thought now nah, just you got to go. So I, literally, all the, the stuff I took to America was the stuff I just packed to ride down to London with. And I, I got to the shipping agency. And said, right, you know, send my bike to America. I'm, I'm sick of putting it off. I'm, I'm going. And um, like I said, I landed. Uh, I flew two days later. And uh, I, I told my mum. <laughs> told my mum when I landed in my, in New York. She she got another email. Good news. <laughs> <laughs>
0: i America. At, at this point, she's got to be getting kind of used to this. <laughs> and she's, she's probably thinking, well, you know, what's next? You, you, so you, you arrive in North America, and, and I'm in North America with yeah. 500 pounds in your pocket, which is probably around, I don't know, $1,000, let's say at the time, or maybe a little bit more. A, a, $1,000 or $1,200 doesn't go far here. It doesn't. For, but it didn't. for anything,
1: it went 6,000 miles.
0: So you managed uh, to take that budget and stretch it out for 6,000 miles? I don't know, there's,
1: a, there's, there's always elements to this, this story. And one of them is, at an event about six months prior, I'd met a guy. I bloody forgot his name all of a sudden. I forgot his name. Um, and he'd said to me, if you ever do another trip, let me know, and I'll, I want to chuck you some cash to help you on your way. And I, you know, you're like, yeah, whatever. No, that's the kind of you. And anyway, two days... After I have to book my flight to America, put the bike on the plane to America. He emailed me out of the blue and just said, How's it going? Malcolm, that's his name. Sorry, Malcolm, I should have remembered. Uh, I just had a brain lapse. And he, he said, What are you up to? I said, Well, by chance, I'm just going to America. And he said, Oh, send us your bank details. I'll send you that 200 quid. I said, No, it's don't worry. I said, I'm not taking your money for this. Said, no. And he said, no, no, I insist. I said, I would. I would. So I sent him my bank details and he sent, he sent me 500 quid. And it was the most. I, I, it just, it was like an angel coming from nowhere. So I, I, instead of having 500 quid, I had a 1,000. Or actually, instead of not being in debt with that 500, I was, I was in the black <laughs> of the red. So it was just completely surreal, completely surreal. And, you know, i leaping ahead slightly. So I got to San Francisco and I booked a return ticket out of New York. So you have to fly into America, you need a return ticket to prove that you're going to leave. So I would got a return ticket out of New York, which I'd missed. And I got to San Francisco, and again, I was completely out of money. I got three credit cards, which were completely chock up full. There was no room to go. No. And I got to San Francisco, and uh, somebody on Facebook said, come and give a talk at the Oakland Bike Club. Fine, I'll do that. So that gave me a, a date to aim for. Got to Oakland about 8 o'clock at night. I'd been That was a long, long day. I'd been from Death Valley that day. No, from, no, from uh, uh, Cambria, just up south of San Francisco. Uh, no, or from L.A., somewhere. Um and I got there, tired and flustered, and they they brought they let me bring Dorothy into the o- Oakland uh um clubhouse and I gave this waffling <laughs> you know meandering talk about Sydney to London and that. And um at the end they said, Right, we'll have a whip round. And I was like, Oh okay, that's carton, thank you. And they whip round like they had three hundred and twenty dollars and they said, And we'll match that, we'll double that from money from the club. So Give me six hundred and forty dollars. I'm like <laughs> Do you realise this is more than I've spent coming across America? And just by chance, there's somebody happened to be somebody from the San Francisco bike club in the audience who's got a friendly rivalry with the Oakland one. He said, "Come and talk at our place tomorrow night." So, so I rode from Oakland across that, I mean, interstate bridge, the, the bridge of death into San Francisco because I couldn't go on the interstate with a bike. Uh, well, I, legally I, or otherwise, I didn't go on the, any interstate across America because it would too hazardous. So, anyway, I got road to San Francisco the next day and I give a talk, same waffling, <laughs> meandering speech. And they said, We're going to have a wit round. And just to let you know, Oakland raised 650 last night. We've got to beat it. So, <laughs> they raised 670 or thereabouts. So, going from being broke in San Francisco, I've now got almost $1,300 in cash, what $1, $5 notes, just stuck in a big wad in my jeans. And <laughs> And then by that time, I met a girl who lived in Seattle. So I thought, I'll ride up to Seattle. And that's what I did. So, and I, that money then allowed me to fly home. That was the money I flew home with.
0: That's so incredible. It's
1: it, it's never been very organized, to be honest. And I, sometimes I feel bad that my trips have only been able to happen because people have, sort of, I don't know, helped me along the way. And, uh, but never predict, never in a predictable way. And I never foresaw any of this. It just, I kind of just, rightly or wrongly, I just put faith in the road and in, in me, me I suppose, or faith in the world and just go for it. And, and uh, thankfully so far, it kind of worked out.
0: And that book you wrote is called Running Towards the Light, Postcards from Alaska. Did you plan on writing the book when you left on the trip? Was it part of your, uh, I guess not really, in the, on the, in the time that you left, you must have thought of this on the road.
1: I mean, I, you always think, it, I, I still had a lot to say, I think. I there's still a lot, a lot to write down and and I don't think you ever write a book for what it means to anybody else, you only write, really you write a book for yourself and if anybody else is interested then great, if they aren't you know, that sometimes you just need to put something down on print and the beauty of a book is that it gives you time to really make sense of of, of something so it could be so called, some would call it self-indulgent but sometimes you need to make sense of a period in your life and that's, that I think that second book was always on the cards just because I felt a other things to say from that first that I didn't say in the first book or figure out and it had been a very dark period in England a a really unpleasant couple of years of my life which I didn't enjoy and and I I wanted to uh, a I was trying to get beyond move beyond that and I felt to put it down in print would help me and thank, it's very nice that so far from a few people who've read it they've kind of said I really can I've been there I can see what I can see what you're saying and they can really Associate with with it. You know, I think all of us are going to have ups and downs, and so it's nice that people have, have come out and and, and associate uh, you know uh, with it. So so the book, I don't know. I mean, it it it's about me, but it's also about America. I was I was, in, I was enchanted by America. i had been to America before. I'd even travelled across America on an organised tour when I was 21, but to see it from the back of a motorcycle. 37 miles an hour to see the the suburbs of Detroit, Chicago, uh, uh, Route Parts Route 66, St. Louis, the the Rust Belt, and then obviously over Colorado, over the Rockies, and then into Utah and Nevada to see it at that speed, to see it from the, the back roads that I had to t- take was was a, an eye opening experience for me, and I kind of put it down. Not all of it's positive. um I got an email from somebody who read it today says, "Gee, you really hate America." And I, said, I don't, but when you're on a bike and traveling wherever you travel, you're always, you know, you're always going to see the, the rough and the smooth. And it was a, it was a, it was a fascinating trip. I enjoyed it, and the, but the people I met were, I met some amazing people on that trip across America. Uh, the, for me, that's what traveling is about. It's the people I meet. It's not, you know, I enjoyed seeing Monument Valley. I enjoyed seeing Grand Canyon, etc. But the people were were fantastic. Um, and I, because of the budget, I, I'd obviously try and camp wild as much as I could. But camping wild in America, I found very problematic. Just finding places to to, to get out of sight. Everywhere is privately land owned, and um, so I'd stay on campsites and meet people there. And uh, for food, I was eating McDonald's just because it was the cheapest option—a ninety-nine-cent cheeseburger and a dollar seventeen for coffee. I'd take in my laptop and I, you know, say hello to, on Facebook, and I'd enjoy my moment of peace for two dollars seventeen. I'd get a bit of food and a bit of drink, and that would that uh, twice a day, and that kept me, that kept me in sustenance to, to all the way to San Francisco. But I met the most amazing people in McDonald's, you know, homeless people, tramps, uh, travelers, every, every sort Met an old guy who'd been panhandling up in California. And he, he, he was traveling by an old push bike with a dog on a piece of end string. And he got buckets of all his belongings. And he, he, he'd had a, it'd gone to, you know, 1500 miles. He traveled up to these gold fields, not found any gold. And he was on his way back to sort of explain himself to his wife who lived in a caravan. You know, Kind of them stories I just I loved, and only, only on the road do you meet those people. If I was at that same McDonald's, uh, you know, with a girlfriend or just travelling uh, for work or whatever, I would never have talk talked to that bloke. I would never engage with him. I would have looked on him and gone, "Why, you know, what a tramp!" But Because I'm a tramp. When I'm travelling, I look like a tramp. I meet these people, and I I have an affinity. I feel I like you have an affinity to them as a traveller. So you hear their stories, and you and I just love those those bonds that you make on the road and they might only last 10 minutes. You might only be talking to them for five minutes, but you never forget that person you met at a particular McDonald's or a rest stop. Or.
0: I saw a video of you doing your talk to the, I think, I think it was the Oakland motorcycle group. Oh, and God. Uh, at one point in the video, you tell them that you've been wearing these clothes for, I think at first you said a couple of days, then you said five days, actually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I like to get good value out of my clothes. But that, again, you know, you, you, you set off on your first trip. When I set out of Sydney, I got this big aluminium box on the back and then a milk crate. I filled it. I got like 10 T-shirts, three pairs of jeans, a couple of pairs of shoes, pants, socks. I've got a million outfits just because you think that's what you'll need. And then by, t- by the time you realize it, you know, maybe a couple of T-shirts, a couple of pairs of underpants and a pair of jeans and, and enough layers to keep you warm for when the temperature changes. So the rest is just tools, laptop and cables um i'm mean, going to carry basic replacement parts because uh, the, the spokes started breaking in kazakhstan on my first trip and thankfully i met some german travelers on motorbikes who insisted I, I get it repaired properly we found this little village where somebody uh somebody managed to um modify the bm the spare bmw spokes this german guy I had into spokes to fit my posty bike and they were the same i left the wheel as it was to travel across america it was it was just outside Detroit near Ann Arbor that uh, the spokes started breaking in the rear wheel, so I, I learned to replace and rethread my own wheel just outside Detroit, and uh, all the way across America, I was having to retighten the, the spokes; they were just coming loose in the, in the back wheel. Until finally in Seattle, I had I had a back wheel rebuilt um, before pushing on up into Alaska, through British Columbia and into Alaska. So, uh, so that's all that the bikes had really. Uh, it's a shame you're not on video at the minute. I, I live in a house here with 17 other people. We, we just uh, I just have a room. Sorry, how many other people? 17. 17 17? Sure. And uh, I don't have a garage or any, anything, so I just have my own little room with a sink in it and a wardrobe, and I've got Dorothy's in here with me. I carried her up to three flights of <laughs> <the> stairs. <laughs> so she, I've got the bed, the bike, and the sink. Uh, <laughs>
0: so so she, she lives right there with you, literally, beside your bed.
1: She does, yeah. She does. We get, we're on better terms now. We're on speaking terms. So, <laughs>
0: well, that's good to know that she's not relegated to the shed or the, you know, well, or she chained does. up and at the sidewalk.
1: Does. Well, exactly. So, um, but now, other than the back wheel, and in Seattle, I had a top end rebore as well um, by the same guy, a guy called the Wheel Wizard, we found on the website in Seattle, an ex uh, Boeing engineer who uh, re the the top end and they rebuilt the wheel with, with really heavy duty spokes and. Yeah. And then um, because I rode across America up to Seattle, I left the bike in a in a friend's shed in Seattle. I came home for six months to work to get some more money and then went back in April last year to, to make that final push, you know, through British Columbia. Ideally, I was aiming for um, Prudhoe Bay, you know, I was going to do the big top of the world experience. And, and I got to Skagway, which is pretty much the first town I came to in Alaska and I saw the sign for Alaska and I went, yeah, I've had enough. Bike's had enough, I've had enough. I've been going to Prudhoe Bay for no other reason than to say I could boast about that I've been to Prudhoe Bay. So I spent a week in Skagway and then caught the inland ferry back down to Seattle and came home with a bike, on a bike went on a boat and I, I flew home. Um, and that was it. I was quite more than content to have made it to Skagway and see that sign for Alaska. I don't know why, it just felt the end of the trip had finally come. When I got to London, I didn't feel like the end of the trip. It just felt like you Know a stopping point when I got to Alaska. I thought, yeah, I, I, I'm 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 content now. My, mile, my miles are done, Dorothy's miles are done.
0: You were meeting other bikers along the way. What was the reaction with people that you bumped into as they find out what you've done and what you're doing and what bike you're riding?
1: Well, the funniest I would say is I was riding, um, the Colorado, the part of the tap routes to the, over Colorado, uh, over the Rockies, and uh, I kept riding up this mountain pass and I got to the top and there was these. Six guys on sort of DRZ 400 type bikes. And, you know, and I just thought it was such a surreal encounter. They were all there, uh, properly kitted out bikes and everything. And then I just, you know, wind my way out the woods on this little old orange red post bike. And they're like, first, obviously, first the accent. And then, like, where have you come from? Like, oh, New York. Oh, where did you start? Oh, Sydney, I suppose. And, you, you know, you've got this weird surrealism of trying to explain where you've come from and where you're heading to. Uh, but again, once you get past the novelty of it, of the bike, then it, they can, most people can see, actually, it's not a bad bike traveling on. I mean, it was hard across the States, through Kansas, everywhere, you know, through the flatlands, through the prairies of the Midwest. It was, that speed is, is not the safest really, because it, there's lots of, even on the second secondary roads, there's still a lot of trucks and traffic and you do feel like a sitting duck. So you ride with your right eye ahead and your left eye on your rear view mirror, just keeping an eye on what's behind you. So you know of every vehicle that's coming up behind. You, you've you seen it before. They get to you, so you you know you can keep an eye on it. And if it's not moved, up, if it's not pulling out to go past you, you can move in, which is incredibly important somewhere like India where you know it's kind of they drive with a certain enthusiasm in India, which means you have to be permanently alert to vehicles pulling out, overtaking, not seeing you. So you you develop a very strong defensive riding style on a bike like this.
0: And after oh, I guess over thirty thousand miles on Dorothy, and all this time you spent riding two books, uh, the long ride home and running towards the light, do you feel you still have something to say, or is this it? Is this now where you throw in the towel, throw your keys down, and and go get a a real job and and, and get in with everybody else?
1: I guess so. I don't. You never know, do you? What really, learned...
0: you're just giving up just like that because you don't no, sound I'm like that. Up.
1: No, I'm not. I will do another trip of some kind, smaller. I think what I've learned is that you don't fight your don't fight your emotions or your inner drive. You know, if you want to do something, you can fight against it as much as you want, but you're going to end up doing it. You may as well just do it. Um, so that's the first thing I've learned. And the second thing is, you don't. there's no answers in taking off on these. These big trips aren't the solutions everybody paints them to be. They're nice if you can afford the time and, and, and the commitment to do it. But if you just go, I get and I get thrill and enjoyment riding for two week for a weekend or a week or something like that. So I want to make it a bit more manageable, sustainable. I can't keep doing these big trips because it takes so much out of me. If I could do it, I'd love to go back and do a, a month in America, for example, or something like that. So just still, so still get wild camping, still get to meet people, but not have that, and st- but still have something to come home to. I think that's the most daunting thing of any trip. If you if you if you totally cut loose and take off and leave everything behind it's fine until you need to come home and then when you've got no, no to come home to you, you, you know you, you spend an age trying to rebuild something or otherwise all you do is just keep going and if you just keep going what you never get anywhere so i think i've just learned to understand what traveling is a bit better and to be more in control of it um so i'll, I'll go again but i've met somebody i love so I, i'm I, for now that's my adventure isn't it um and, and who knows? Might might do a trip together, or she might do a trip with me up back. You know, maybe she's a better rider than me. I don't know. <laughs> you
0: make some interesting points there. Um, <laughs> what what Bunks do you waffle. think? <laughs> no, what do you think travel is about then?
1: Challenging yourself. You know, I, I hear tra- traveling is a too is overused word. I hear people going and sitting on beaches in Thailand saying they're traveling. No, they're not traveling. They're, uh, they're a holiday. Traveling, I think, is when you you take your comfort zone, you step you step out of it, and you're scared and you're nervous and you're frightened, but you keep on going because a part of traveling is, is that you learn and, and you grow and you and you discover. And then, when you stop doing that, you stop traveling. But when you're doing that, you're traveling. And I don't think you need to geographically move to be traveling. Now, when I see people, now, when, I, when I see somebody proposing to a girlfriend, that's traveling. That's as big a step of traveling than getting on a plane to Thailand. Going down, uh, taking any big gamble or big step in life, I think mean, that's traveling, uh, even if you're not moving geographically. Uh, I, I don't know. Ge- traveling's a bit, it's overused.
0: On your next adventure, will you, uh, well, you've already mentioned that maybe Dorothy's done, will you move up to a bigger bike or, or do you like the smaller bike or what's your choice?
1: Um, I've, I've been in, a, uh, this last year, I was fortunate. My, my travels got me a job on a, mag- a, a bike magazine, a, an adventure bike magazine. So the last year I spent on big bikes, bigger bikes, and I rode the the new V-Strom 1000 quite a lot, and I rode it off-road quite a lot. And I kind of liked liked being able to cover distances, because on Dorothy, it's all about the distance. You know, if you want to detour and see a site and it's 70 miles away, you think, I'm not riding three hours to see a, a canyon or three hours to see a temple or something. You know, you're just bypassing so much stuff. But I, I'd like to travel on a bike where I can, I can think, yeah, it's only an hour's ride. I'll go, and so it becomes less about the bike and more about the people, about the sites, about the country. I think that's why, if I was to do another book, it wouldn't be about me and my travels and my feelings or emotions, or whatever. It'd just be. That's what I enjoyed about America. You can really get stuck into it because you've not got, a, you've got, you've got no language barrier, so you can, you can talk about public health and uh, the deterioration of the cities or racial tensions, you can you can find all those things out and you can write about them and I like that side of travelling, the, the educational side of it, so maybe I'd love to go back to Australia and do a, a proper loop of Australia and try and get underneath the service of say the Aboriginal issue or all the issues affecting any country really, and there's so much to learn outside, I, I think we're living in a world where we get more and more information but none of it's of any depth where it's, it's, it's it doesn't garner us with any knowledge. Um, and I'd I like, I like, I like to troll just to try and understand the world a bit better, for me and then for anybody who might want to read about it.
0: The two books are The Long Ride Home and Running Towards the Light, both of them self-published by Nathan Millward. And you can visit his website to get those books at NathanMillward.com. And, of course, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Nathan, thanks very much for coming on Adventure Rider Radio and sharing your story.
1: Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. Great to talk to you.
0: I've been speaking with Nathan Millward, who rides a Honda C110, well, around the world. He's written two books, The Long Ride Home and Running Towards the Light. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, I'm Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. you want to do Adventure Rider Radio a favor drop by the iTunes website Only take you a minute, go in there, give us a rating tell them what you think of the show and drop by our Facebook page like our page, post us a comment, send us a photo whatever you do on Facebook on Twitter we are ADV Rider Radio Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you by Canoe West Media Grant Johnson from horizonsunlimited.com, and you're on Adventure Rider Radio.